Welcome everybody to the Us Without Them podcast uh, and the overview episode of season one, talking about A to B life, Me Without You's first record. Um, it's exciting. There's a lot to talk about. Um, I think that kind of a natural place to start in talking about the record is talking about the origins of Me Without You, the context of uh, the scene in which they find themselves, um, the influences, the, their sound, all of all of those things. Um, and I think that, you know, one thing we have to say right off the bat is that Me Without You introduces a sound that I don't think quite existed yet um, in the underground post-hardcore punk uh, scenes. There's a lot to to kind of dig in to with that. Um, I, I think that uh, there's, you know, Aaron has mentioned a number of times um, some of his influences vocally, but certainly uh, Aaron's vocal delivery coupled with the lyricism, coupled with uh, the kind of post-rock and post-punk sound of Me Without You, uh, I think made for a combination that was, um, really utterly unique. And I mean, it's interesting. I, uh, you know, in, in doing research for the, the book that I'm writing um, on the scene, um, when I interviewed John Dunn, who was the head of A&R from 2003 to about 2013, he also plays bass in the band uh, Demon Hunter. Um, he, he referred to me without you as uh, Tooth and Nails street cred band um, <laughs> that, uh, that they were uh, a band that Brandon Ebel loved, uh, Brandon Ebel, the head of uh, Tooth and Nail, of course, um, but that they didn't think would ever be commercially viable or successful necessarily, that they were just taking a flyer on these guys. That they, uh, they loved what they were doing. They loved what they were about. And then it turned out that they were one of the more successful <laughs> bands to ever be on Tooth and Nail. Um, and so... I, I mean, I think a couple of the influences that come to mind for me, uh, you know, Aaron has always mentioned uh, the band Ink and Dagger, um, which was a, a mid 90s, uh, mid to late 90s uh, hardcore band, post hardcore band that that shares that uh, similar sort of spoken word scream style. Um, but I also think of a band like Slint. Um, which mm. was a math rock, you know, kind of post-punk, post-rock um, even, post-rock yeah. band, uh, you know, and their their record Spiderland from 1991 um, is so. I, I mean, it's impossible to state the importance of that record for underground music. It's one of those records that, like, a lot of people don't, a lot of people know about it, and a lot of people don't know about it. Yep. Um, and I think that, you know, if you came into listening to, to underground music kind of in the 2000s or later, and you go back and listen to something like Spiderland, it maybe strike, would strike you as odd or hard to listen to. There's a lot of dissonant sounds. Um, there's a lot of spoken word. The songs are long. They, they go on for a long time. Um, but I think that Me Without You, for me anyway, it was this like clicking point with Slint because I I was mm. one of those people who's like Slint I get I get it I really like math rock um, but when I kind of started thinking about the influences that that band has had on later bands and it's, you know I I don't know how I mean I would assume that me without you is familiar with Slint and sure. knows about that record but um, but that's a record that, like, even if you don't know about that band, you have been influenced by them in some way. That record was so, so influential. And so, yeah, I, I think that there's, you know, you see uh, in Me Without You this kind of interesting bridge from those sounds and these sort of somewhat related but also disparate at the same time underground music scenes with this kind of post-rock art rock, math rock thing, and then um, post-hardcore, which is such a, I, I'm not one of those people who says post-hardcore is a meaningless term entirely, uh, but it does capture a, a lot. 
Um, <laughs> so it when does. I say when I say post hardcore, I, I think you know for me, I basically just mean anything that um, that takes the intensity and chaos of hardcore punk from the 80s so things like black flag and bad brains and and so on um and then turns it into something else um which again yeah. is so expansive um uh but yeah i i think that at the time when me without you came out um you know you you had a lot of uh you know midwest emo stuff in the scene and and tooth and nail was uh, trying to get in on that with Juliana theory. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then you had metalcore bands, right? You have Norma Jean, you have under oath, uh, getting, getting started, um, around the, that time. Um, and so me without you filled this, uh, this space in the scene that no, no one else was there. Um, you know, a band like law dispute, touche amore, um, they came later. Uh, and you know, I I enjoy those bands. I own their records, mm -hmm. um, but they are you know hugely in debt to the the road that me without you sort of paved. Oh, that's that's great and um hat tip for the slint reference because um <laughs> you're absolutely right we have no evidence as of the recording of this that they they were directly influenced but you're that is one of those records that sent ripples throughout originally the underground scene but even into some of the mainstream i mean yeah. i'm thinking of bands like post-rock bands now that are huge like mogwai Cigaros, yeah. etc., yeah. that yes. wouldn't exist in the way that they do without that seminal record of Spiderland. So yeah, that's totally a great reference. Yeah. I've I've never listened to Spiderland, but I have listened to a lot of Hildegard of Bingen, 12th century uh <laughs> German nun and mystic. And I just want to throw a shout out for Hildegard right now that uh, <laughs> in in her magnum opus, uh this this morality play called Ordo Virtutum um, everyone gets a singing role uh, except for the devil he's the only one who speaks and mm. oh, uh, wow and it and it, it started a I don't even know if I could say a tradition but it set a precedent that was followed occasionally in the centuries after um, of, of putting spoken word into a musical context in a way that othered it it made it something that seemed out of place mm, and i mm. just i just want to throw that out there that there's some really deep cultural roots to the assumptions we make about about spoken vocals on top of a musical background um the nice. other the other instance i can think of is uh in the 19th century uh carl maria von weber uh, wrote an opera called der freischutz or the the free shooter and there's the, the famous scene from that opera, um, it's called The Wolf's Glen, and there's this super creepy uh, dialogue that goes on about casting magic bullets, and it's a whole hmm. sort of like, you know, ger German fantasy sort of thing going on. But similarly, in that opera, um, the devil character doesn't get to sing. It's an opera. I mean, it's a sung through drama, and everybody has a singing part except for this devil figure. So I'm not wow. trying to make a direct analogy to like, any vocal <laughs> style, but I'm just saying there's something that 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 people have associated with with that that I thought it's worth bringing up here. Totally, and also I have a cat named Hildegard. Well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that makes me happy. Named uh, after absolutely. Hildegard of Bingen. Yeah, yeah, that's no, no, really great. Oh. She's one of my heroes, so I'm glad to hear somebody else <laughs> shares the love. <laughs> yeah, um, and. I think to dive a little bit more into the immediate kind of context that yep. uh, that A to B life is released under, yep. um, it's definitely worth noting like what was happening in, I mean, not, you know, not just kind of underground music generally, but specifically with tooth and nail, Christian sort of, you know, um, punk and hardcore, um, you know, so I mentioned that you had uh, 
you know, an, some pop punk stuff, some kind of Midwesty emo sounding stuff. Um, Further Seems Forever, also, I think, huge band mm. at the same time. Um, and then Solid State, uh, which had existed since the mid 90s, but was really, I think, blowing up huge, um, you know, in the early 2000s with uh, Norma Jean and uh, Under Oath. So, yeah. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I don't think that, to my knowledge, nobody really has ever talked about the fact that, um, you know, or, or the, the role of 9-11 in the shaping of the underground scene. And I think that that is, uh, well, the, the underground Christian scene specifically, because right. I think there's tons of examples of, of how it affected underground music elsewhere. I mean, you have a lot of examples of responses to 9-11 and the war in Iraq in particular, but not so much in the Christian music scene. Um, and I think that that is, uh, you know, in part because of a certain kind of political quietism, I would say, um, on the part of primarily white evangelical Christians, I mean, we we do tend to think of white evangelical Christians as bombastically, uh, you know, obscenely loud about their politics. Specifically in a musical context, like a, a country western. Right. But that's genre. right. But that's a different type of evangelical. Right. It's the right. one that's like the most well known. But I think that the folks who were into this scene specifically that me without you was coming into like the cornerstone that's right kind of uh you know music festival um you know church show church punk rock show scene um there there is a kind of i mean this is one of the kind of central themes of, of the book that i'm writing i don't want to make <laughs> this all about this all about this book but um you know i i think that there's there was a sense of like what it means to be authentically christian is to mm -hmm. just kind of reject both sides of the political spectrum in a, in a sense, kind of like rise above partisan politics and, you know, the whole Jesus wasn't a Democrat or a Republican thing. And, and I think what that creates um, is this, yeah, this quietism where it's like, well, we're just, we're not going to talk about it because, you know, that's the, the partisans on in the country are doing that. And, for me, that's not what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I don't think that that's what, I'm not saying that's what me without you was thinking or doing, but I think that's the general sort of milieu, right? In which they are coming into in right. and why you don't find um, songs that are about really about 9-11 or about politics. I mean, you, <laughs> I think there are a few examples, but by and large, you really don't find those kinds of responses. And that's especially interesting because of the Weiss brothers background, right? As being from an interfaith Jewish Muslim uh, family. I mean, I'm not really personally, not really sure about their, uh, you know, faith journey or faith story. <laughs> I know that they um, certainly uh, were, were part in Christianity for uh, at least a little bit. And I don't know about now, but um but yeah, it, it's interesting that uh, I think there was a sense, especially at the beginning, that like, oh, well, this is a tooth and nail band, so they're just like straightforwardly evangelical yeah. Christian. Right. Just to um, to kind of take a sidebar here and and clarify uh, the, the the story as best I understand it is that Aaron and Mike grew up in a house where their their mother had been raised as an, as an Episcopalian, I think. Yep. Their father okay. was Jewish, and that both of them had had met and gotten to know each other and bonded through following this um, Sufi Muslim uh, leader, okay, right, named, right. Uh, Bawa Muhayyadeen. Um, That's correct. Who, yeah, I, th I think Bawa is going to he, he's going to continue to come up because I think he does exert a, an ongoing influence on the lyrics for me without you. I th that's just to give that backstory. I think that's yeah, kind of the, that's helpful. The home environment. And right. even so, some further context, I was actually flipping through all the clever words on pages uh, to find a direct quote, and I'm not finding the one that I highlighted, but um, 
from memory, uh, they were also surrounded by predominantly working class Catholics. And so because of this kind of inherent othering of their very diverse spiritual background, they were quoted as saying like, man, I wish I was just Catholic a lot mm. of the time. So yeah, it's yeah. there's also this interesting kind of play there. Like, how do I fit in societally? And I think that actually bolsters your point, Joel, of I'm not going to talk about something larger than the self right now or larger than the small collective community because I'm still trying to figure out what that means for myself. I don't really have the right. It's not in my bailiwick right now to comment on what my country, you know, uh, using my faith as a weapon might be uh, Mm -hmm. wanting us to do. So that's a really interesting. For sure. And and to be fair to all the tooth and nail bands who were around at that time, most of them were 18, 19, 20 year olds or maybe a little bit older, but like no one, no one really was in their like 30s or something. Um, And so, you know, just as they, they were frustrated you know, oftentimes you hear about them being frustrated, being asked to like preach at a show, you know, if it was a church show or something, they're like, I- I'm 19. I don't even know what I believe. Like, you want me to yeah. tell, you know, and so to, to, for us to then expect, right. Uh, all this commentary on, you know, politics and stuff from 19 year olds. It's like, okay, yeah, you're right. That, that probably would be asking a lot. Um, sure would, but yeah. And I think that that's also, I mean, their ages, uh, is important context for sure for A to B life, um, since so many of the tracks are about romantic heartbreak on on some level. That's as good a place as any to jump into, you know, just talking about like specifically what was me without you talking about singing about, you know, what, what kind of music were they making at the beginning? Um, yeah. Yeah. In the mix of all that scene. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning, even though this is, you know, we're in now beginning season one, we're talking about A to B life this season. Um, me without you put out a couple of other EPs before they, before they released A to B life. And so we'll just acknowledge that they exist here. We're not going to do a deep dive on those. One is much easier to find than the other, but that's okay. Yep. Yep. And they exist in just a straightforward way, not in like a me without you way, like existing or not (laughs) existing through non-existence or something. They actually exist. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) so the first of those EPs uh, is, is called blood enough for us all. Um, I I couldn't tell you like a recording date or release date. I think it technically maybe was finished in 2000, um, but I'm not positive on that. And if my date's wrong, then I'm sorry, world. Um, <laughs> They'll let uh, us know. It, 99 yeah. or 2000 is one yeah. of those. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then in 2001, um, they finished uh, a second EP called I Never Said That I Was Brave. Um, which I think they still sell on their website. So like that one, they've yeah. they've retained a sense of ownership of that, even if it even if it sort of predates their first official release. You could almost say that was them beginning to dabble into what they truly became versus just yeah. putting music down. There's a clear linear delineation, you know, between the albums, and it it, it makes sense where they're going. And those first two EPs that feels more like what I expect from most bands first two albums. That is, we are finding our footing in a scene and we are attempting to become commercially successful in whatever market it is where we're playing around in. Whereas me without you aesthetic changes, you know, more maturity throughout later albums, et cetera. Any of that is true, but there's something truly um, authentic. They found Mm -hmm. their authentic voice and kind of kept working on that and and building around it. Yeah, and this this concept of authenticity, uh, I think, is also just so important. Not only, you know, there's musical authenticity, but there's also a certain authenticity of self that Aaron, uh, you know, and the rest of the band are kind of putting into this record and subsequent records um, that I think 
will be important to keep coming back to as kind of a, a this a, a sort of touchstone. I mean, so often Christian music is, I think, rightly accused of <laughs> just kind of um, trying to create its own culture in a sense, like by ripping off, you know, secular culture, right? They mm. just kind of come in after secular culture has established something and and then make their own version of it. And I think that, I mean, that is sort of the story as it's popularly told. Um, but I think it's much more complicated than that, actually. Um, you find, uh, you know, Christianity, at least different versions of Christianity than just white evangelicalism, had a huge role in just the emergence of rock and roll itself. Um, I mean, the yeah. Pentecostal church, you know, contributed so much to um, what we come to know as rock and roll in the 1950s. Um, but all that said, I think that Me Without You was truly pioneering something. They were not copying a sound. So, I mean, people can like, you know, joke about Christ core and all, you know, all these sure. different names for like Christian heavy music. And maybe that's true to a certain extent. I mean, I hear people all the time say how Norma Jean is a ripoff of the band Botch, um, which maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But uh, I don't think you can point to a band that Me Without You was ripping off. There, there, fact, isn't, there isn't one. It works the other way in most yeah. cases. Yeah, right? totally, totally. Yeah, um, And maybe that puts them even more sort of on the periphery, actually, of Christian music yeah. um, in, a, in a way. But, um, but yeah, I think that, that the authenticity of, right, they're not trying to just cop some other style or do a Christian version of some, like, they were doing their own thing and writing about what they wanted to write about. Um, and it really, really comes through you know, even as early as this record, they had already found that voice. So now's a good time, I think, to uh, talk about some of the themes that we see uh, in the album that we'll be touching on uh, as we kind of go through track by track. Um, one thing we talked about in our previous conversation, or maybe we didn't even then, is this concept of kind of heartbreak in a, in a romantic uh, context, but also interpreting that as a religious heartbreak, as in... Mm -hmm. I'm going through a spiritual journey. I don't know what it is to be me. Why aren't yeah. you giving me the answers, deity, that I hold so much faith in? Mm -hmm. But then you can ascribe many of the same kind of emotional cues to early 20s relationships. Yeah. And having been that person who loved music like this because it helped me understand what I was going through when I, quote unquote, got my heart broken... I didn't, kids. I, it was just how I was <laughs> interpreting it. Um, but clearly, there is something to be said about the the struggles of the self in yeah. in finding the self, both in the scene, in romance, in in spiritual matters. So that is clearly a theme throughout me without use discography. But specifically, A to B life feels like that album for me, anyway. Yeah, it's a it's a breakup record. Is that yep. fair to say? Silly? I think so. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I, to I totally think it is. And and there, you know, we'll we'll talk more about the existentialism piece of it uh, a little bit later on. But there, there's this kind of working through of uh, how do I deal with suffering, right? Um, what what is what it what am I right in relation to suffering? Yep. Um, and it just so happens that the suffering that he's going through that is sparking this reflection is uh is a breakup and i think that that's totally uh you know that's apt for being a young you know early 20 something i mean you know we we all wrote songs or poetry or whatever yeah. you know yeah. about uh about heartbreak that that's what is on your mind when you are 21 22 23 that's right and i know we're going to talk about this in more depth as we go through the songs and later on in this episode but the almost 
segmentation, the, 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 the narrative structure of the album, in fact, there's rage at the beginning and then thematically that rage kind of subsides and then springs up again. And it's, it's very, it truly feels like processing a breakup, the yeah. going through the stages of grief in a sense. It, maybe you couldn't probably track it, you know, the five stages of grief in that order, but may, maybe you could, that might be an interesting way to look at it. Well, I'd like to say something about the order of the album. So this is <clears throat> the more I've listened to this and thought through it and just looked at the lyrics and, and listened to it over and over again, I'm becoming oh. increasingly convinced that, um, that you can listen to A to B life as, as a basically linear narrative, but that doesn't start at the beginning. Mm. Um, so here's the way that I read it, uh, is I would put the beginning of the story at, at track six in gentlemen, a yeah. sort of starts to lead into that. That seems like the beginning of the story. Uh, and then you can follow through kind of a whole movement for, for four songs and then B is another break. And so I think the middle of the story is those last two tracks, silencer and the cure for pain. Yeah. Mm. And then. And then the end of the story is actually where the album begins. So I think in a, in a narrative sequence, I would put bullet to binary after the cure for pain, mm -hmm. follow through and then track four, everything is beautiful and nothing hurt is really the end of the narrative. Um, mm. So you can kind of just shift the whole thing over and start with gentlemen end with everything that was beautiful and nothing hurt. And, and to me, it, it makes sense to read it that way. If we were to turn this into one continuous epic poem. <laughs> yeah. I think mm -hmm. that makes total sense. Lyrically well, and, anyway. And then so Steve, I I'm curious then what I mean in terms like what do you think then is the narrative significance uh, if you've thought this far ahead yeah, uh, yeah. of beginning with with the end. I mean sometimes you know you you see uh films do that um mm -hmm. you know to try to set up like some sort of surprise about yeah. how things actually begin or you know something like that that there's some kind of twist that it's preparing you for but i'm curious right. like what is what's the effect do you think of doing it that way well for me and we can get into this maybe in more detail with the songs but i feel like the moment of resolution to break up comes at the end of the cure for pain yep i think that like this so it's almost like the 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 climax of of the narrative structure is this blank space between where the album actually ends and then where it begins again and so it's like he's made this resolution to break up at the end of what's literally the last track and mm -hmm. then and then the actual breakup is what happens at the start of the album so it's like that's got the most energy to it for a breakup record that you actually see the event itself unfolding right out of the gate yeah does that make sense yeah it, yeah it does there's a there's a million reasons why a producer and a band decide the track order of something. Yeah. Who knows the order they wrote these songs in, but I really like right. this theory. And I mm -hmm. think it would be a fun one to continue with as we go into the song by song, lyric by lyric uh, analysis. Mm -hmm. But um, just to kind of back that up, Joel, you mentioned movies do this all the time. The most obvious one to me is Memento, which yeah, happened I was to come Memento, out yeah. two, two years beforehand. So right. there is some context for, oh, yeah, let's shake up the narrative structure of things to make mm -hmm. the point about the realization rather than the order that it happened. Right. And I mean, a lot of, I mean, Pulp Fiction also, yep. you know, famously told out of order. Um, I mean, there are lots of films like that was sort of the, uh, I when I started college, I began in in film school um, thinking I was going to be like, you know, a writer, director or something like that yeah. didn't work out. Uh, but uh, I do remember, you know, people, professors and, and so forth talking about the 90s as like the age of postmodern storytelling. Right. And that this is kind of the the quintessential i mean now i would say like it's a very it's sort of an overdone maybe it's tired a, it's, kind it's of approaching trope. cliche yeah yeah so that you don't really find people doing that anymore or you find i mean again christopher nolan uh in the movie tenant right mm -hmm. doing sort of something similar but in a very different way yeah i think it i think it fits you know especially there, there's a lot that's sort of generally kind of postmodern about um about the lyrics particularly the existential themes and the kurt vonnegut references i think you know yeah. vonnegut sort of famously 
uh, kind of lumped in as a postmodern science fiction writer, you know. Um, before we, we get too far into postmodernism or existentialism or anything <laughs> like that, I do want to say just at a, at a, at a first pass face value reading a to B life to me feels very at home in the 19th century. Mm. I remember feeling that way the first time I heard it, like that, that was, yeah. I didn't know if I had language for it at the time, but the, the poetic nature of the lyric with these you know, really like beautiful, balanced rhyming couplets. It's so interesting that you say that. I mean, I, re I remember thinking too, that like even aesthetically in terms of like fashion, um, yeah. there was something that felt sort of like a uh, modern civil war era, like mm -hmm. about the way that they would dress. And I even remember um, like lining up outside of the troubadour the first time that I saw them and like kind of looking back at these dudes who were wearing civil war era inspired mm -hmm. like hats and coats like army coats and like yep. ascots you know yeah, yeah. you yeah. know <laughs> so like there there absolutely is something uh definitely in the early uh uh you know um years for sure uh that is very 19th century and i think i mean you know we'll we'll get to the other records but i think that continues too yeah yeah but i mean but there's only you know me without you put out one music video uh to promote this album and you can definitely see the way the guys are dressed in that video is yep. is unusual for the time like right. you if you're putting them in like a you know a hardcore post hardcore kind of a scene like they're not wearing like solid black you know skinny <laughs> jeans or whatever right. like, you know there's right. yeah they did not fit into the if if you know the reference uh this is not your scene you know yes. the like yeah. this is what a rockabilly couple looks like this is what right. a post post rock person looks like exactly right. they, yeah. they didn't fit into that yeah. almost in a and i was going to make a reference back to that kind of middle um section starting with gentlemen ending with never i never said that i was brave that feels very much like the the suite of songs that you hear in like Abbey Road by the Beatles. And so mm, they're, they're yeah. almost dressing the way the Beatles did. And, you know, we're yeah, but there's a tongue in cheekness to it. Right. Let's not forget, especially at this time, they thought of themselves as a joke, as a side project for some of their other mm -hmm. bands. And yeah. they just wow. They realized very quickly. No, this is our main gig. OK, cool. But it that never really left. There's this right. interesting maturity right out of the gate with their first mm -hmm. full length that's coupled with a silliness, a uh, a childish nature, a whimsical nature in in a yeah. sense. And so that yeah. that 19th century is spot on because, and we'll see this later on, not really as much in this album, but there's a fantastical nature to a lot of their lyrics, mm -hmm. and uh, that's so great. Yeah, and I think that Steve, what you're saying about like the meter of the lyrics is totally correct, and and I think that it that's possible because of his delivery, right? Yeah. Aaron's Aaron's delivery is as though he is reading a poem, but he's screaming it, he's shouting yeah. it, right? Um, yeah. But but that is that's what that's also really what differentiates him, I think. From I mean, you hear that a little bit in like law dispute. But but he the you know law dispute sounds uh, much closer I think to more tra traditional you know post hardcore yeah. whereas Aaron really is his vocal delivery is is his um, and it, it really does I mean I remember thinking that um, I was an English major <laughs> in college <laughs> when this came out and I do remember thinking like it sounds like he's giving a poetry reading but he's yep. screaming the poem yeah yep. that's awesome. <laughs> Well, and to connect to the law dispute for a moment, this treads into Steve, your your musical analysis territory, mm -hmm. but Aaron is rarely singing a melody. He's speaking his words. I mean, there are mm -hmm. melodic moments in, in it, but in a lot of his kind of poetical screaming, 
it fits with the music, but in a different way. It's not sitting right. on top of it, guiding us, the listener, through how to hear the song. Yeah. And in a sense, that almost makes it a you're struggling to hear it because you also want to hear the melody being played by the, the guitar right. and the and the bass. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it creates this really interesting juxtaposition that makes it for a much more engaging and enriching once you've gotten into it, ex- musical experience. Yeah. I just to, to make this point clear, because I think it's, it's significant. Yeah. Uh, Aaron never sings a melody on this album. There's a little tiny bit of melodic singing that the other guys in the band pitch in Dan and mm-hmm. Mike both do a little bit of melodic singing and Aaron never does. And yeah. it's the only record of theirs that's like that. But I think in yeah. the absence of clear vocal melody, the the actual freedom of expression for him to do this poetry recitation, you know, at at full volume um, is really stunning. And, you know, like all human speech has pitch. Um, yep, sure. You know, some yeah. languages are predicated on that, that like, you know, the same. Yeah. 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 Same phone. Fo- phoneme with a different pitch is going to have a different change the meaning yeah yeah have a different meaning you know the reason poetry works as an aesthetic practice is is because in the delivery you can you can emphasize things in different ways but even just the sounds of words you know have have a, a sonic dimension that i think like you know you don't need to get into the theory of this you just experience it intuitively but every vowel you know emphasizes different overtones every yep. consonant activates different partials like there's just the the basic fact of human speech um is is such a a multifaceted like quasi-symphonic experience if you really sit back and just and pay attention to what's going on yeah um that you totally don't need a melody for the for the vocals to to be really evocative and powerful but it's still interesting that they pull it off so well to start getting into some more of the kind of existentialism yeah, questions let's go i was there. just thinking yeah let's go there because I, I, I feel like that fits well with what we were just talking about with the poetic structure and, and things of that nature because it's not just the content of his lyrics it's also the way the juxtaposition with the lyrics over the music that plays into that theme so joel why don't you kind of get us started there so there's i mean there's a few different things that that i'm kind of thinking of, um, you know, we, we've been, as we've been preparing, we've been talking uh, a bit about uh, Soren Kierkegaard and um, his text, Either Or, which has two characters in it, A and B, and I'll let Steve talk more specifically about, um, about Either Or, but, but just Kierkegaard's existentialism in general, I think, is an interesting and and I mean really 19th century existentialism more broadly, including Frederick Nietzsche, um, makes for kind of an interesting map uh, for me without you's work. And specifically, I'm thinking about the relationship between the aesthetic person, the ethical person, and the religious person. Mm-hmm. The religious personality doesn't really doesn't come into play in either or. Um, but it's interesting because you know Kierkegaard thought um, that the problem with society was that the religious and the ethical had become flattened into one thing um, because of Immanuel Kant, who basically tried to give a rational justification for religious belief. And Kierkegaard essentially says religion's not rational, and that's that's what makes it religion, and that's what makes it important is that it doesn't conform to rationality. So yes, ethics is rational, right? There's something that is that is rational about, about um, being an ethical person. But to be a religious person, that transcends rationality because God is outside of rationality. Mm. And so I, you know, I don't, I'm not going to point to like specific places necessarily where I see that happening. You know, I'll save that for when we get to uh, talking, you know, song by song, but I think that there is an interesting, there's a questioning going on in the lyrics about um, what does it mean to, to to do the right thing? Like, what? how do I be 
an ethical self or, you know, do I, how can I hold intention my humanness with like, you know, moral behavior or my, or my, um, you know, uh, you know, my proclivities toward sexuality or, or, you know, something like that. Right. Um, and then, you know, it, the, the Nietzschean aspect that's really interesting to me is that, uh, you know, Nietzsche's understanding of the uh, aesthetic personality, the ethical, well, he says philosophical personality and the religious personality is that it's uh, all about uh, each of those relationships to the world itself. The For both the aesthetic and the philosophical, their quote unquote rejection of worldliness is uh, is fake. It's a front. They can turn it off. They don't they don't embrace it as part of themselves, right? Mm. Whereas the the aesthetic priest, as Nietzsche says, is the only one who actually lives the rejection of the world, right? It is his whole being. And because he's able to inhabit what Nietzsche sees as a fundamentally um, false orientation toward the world, not a natural one, uh, he thinks that we can reverse that. And, hmm. you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche's whole point is that we should reject the aesthetic priest and instead fully embrace the opposite, right? Which is our imminent worldliness. Um, and I think that there's, uh, you know, in the with A to B life, you, you see the beginnings of a kind of wrestling with this, do I reject the world or do I embrace the world, right? Do I do... In, in, you know, in the name of God, right, in the yep. name of my faith, should I reject my humanness, my worldliness, and try to disappear in, you know, into the divine, or do I not do that, right? Is there something that's important to kind of maintain about my humanness? Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll save, I, I, I have some things to say about Vonnegut and the Vonnegut references as well, but I think I'm going to save those for when we get to those, uh, when we get to those songs, but um, Vonnegut right. plays in, in here too, because of the, um, you know, he's definitely wrestling with very similar themes. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Steve, I know you have lots more to talk about on that, but I do want to jump in just in reference to our previous conversation. Yeah. The kind of musical context. So five years prior to this album coming out, uh, Elliot Smith released either or same title as the Kierkegaard uh, piece. And so I just think it's a really interesting piece to tap into that something that very well was culturally relevant to specifically Aaron. I can just see some similarities with how Elliot yeah. wrote and how Aaron writes, not in that mm -hmm. Elliot's doing spoken word or anything like that, but grappling with similar questions of identity through a secular lens um, is, is super interesting. And the fact that he titled an entire album uh, after that makes it all the more evocative to me. It was so many things. We don't know, you know, what, right. what Aaron was listening to. We don't know what he was reading directly. Um, there's at least one mention in, in Paul Matthew Harrison's book, All the Clever Words on Pages of Kierkegaard in this early phase. So at least like we have one witness, you know, who, who knew Aaron at the time um, saying that that's one of the things he was reading. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's at least a clue that that we're not crazy. Um, but I do think <laughs> there's some other interesting things that I don't want to take with a light hand here uh, about Kierkegaard's own life that that map interestingly onto a to b life just yes. at the moment of life like the relative ages of soren kierkegaard and aaron weiss at the time i don't i don't have the numbers in front of me but they were i think both in their like early 20s yeah or so. either or was one of kierkegaard's first major if not his first major it was publication, his first major publication yeah, yeah. yeah. he had finished his his doctoral thesis before then but this was right. the first thing he put out and he and he wrote it uh after after breaking off an engagement right. um that he had you know he had this relationship with this woman and for reasons that smarter people than me can explain that, <laughs> uh, you know, he decided that that was not possible. My, my read on it is that he didn't really know what to do with the relationship and he was so miserable and also so afraid of like having another person, you know, in his right. life on a long-term span that he just couldn't put up with it. So, so whatever the case, you know, there's this, 
there's this single intense relationship followed by a breakup, followed by the production of this first major published work um, that is a nice parallel between the two. Uh, and you already mentioned, you know, in in Kierkegaard's Either Or, there are these two major characters and the whole thing has a frame around it too. You know, there's right. there's all these layers of pseudonym subterfuge that it's like, well, so I, this made up character, found these papers and well, one seems to be from this guy who I'm just going to call A, the other one is the response letters from this guy we're going to call B or Wilhelm something or other. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Pages up. Um, and so to me, listening to A to B life to keep this, you know, on, on the record we're going <laughs> to talk about, um, I, with this narrative structure that I see where you, you kind of start the story in the middle, that instrumental track, uh, just called a seems like a header. It's like, okay, here's a, which in Kierkegaard's book is the whole section exploring the life, uh, from an aesthetic point of view. So as far as I read it, like that's talking about, um, you know, both beauty and, and sensuality, you know, as being the kind of driving forces of life. But these are, these are sort of external forces that you don't get to control. You just let them happen to you. And then you flow through life in response to those external right. forces. Um, so to me, it seems like in, in the narrative of A to B life, we have those more strongly at play in that middle section that begins with A as a track. Uh, it doesn't map on perfectly. I wouldn't expect it to. I, I have no, no like pretense that Aaron Weiss was like sitting or reading this book and deciding to write an album in response to it. I think it's <laughs> right. an inter interesting overlay, not like a key to unlock, you know, the actual meaning of, of the record. Right. But um, then if you look at B and, you know, just those last two tracks, Silencer and The Cure for Pain, especially, but then, you know, if you, if you want to read this, that the album cycles back around in the first section up until A is sort of all part of this ethical section you know you see the striving towards the ethical towards what you can control internally in terms of making moral decisions for better right. or for worse and so you see those two fighting against each other and joel as you mentioned you know this third option that transcends either the aesthetic or the ethical of the religious i feel like this album doesn't doesn't quite get there yet right yeah and and i but i, I do feel like what we see in me without you's career after a to b life yes fits very easily into that slot. Yeah, totally. We'll, we'll just get there when we get there. But um, yeah, I think it makes it all the more interesting to use this as a cipher for what we're talking about here. Right. And I think that, I mean, yeah, you're, you're spot on there with that, that summary. Um, and it's, yeah, it's this move from, uh, you know, the, the aesthetic, per, the aesthetic personality is the, is the neutral personality. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Kierkegaard says at the end of either or that the either or is not a choice between good and evil. It's a choice of uh, taking good and evil together or or neither of them. Yeah. Right. So it's a choice between uh, confronting that conflict between good and evil or just yeah. remaining neutral and ignoring it. And that's what the aesthetic personality does. So there, yes, yeah. there's sensuality and pleasure and, and all this connected to the aesthetic, but there's no, um, you know, the, the moral choice is not to choose the good, it's to ignore the good and the yeah. evil. And that to be ethical is to actually choose both of those together, right? And yes, mm -hmm. you want to will the good, but it's a con, it requires the confrontation yeah. of evil. And I think that that's a really, uh, Wow. It's a really astute uh, ethic, uh, observation, I think, about mm -hmm. ethics and what it actually means to make a meaningful ethical choice, right? Yeah. That it's not you just ignore um, evil, but that there's, you know, that there's this confrontation that's necessary, right? That you that you yeah. allow yourself to sort of step into and put and perhaps suffer, right? As as a result of that. And I, I think, you know, it's it's worth bringing up um, a, f a few other things in response to that. Hey, if we're talking about, you know, like the ethical not as being the good choice, but then the choice of good and evil as a combined mm -hmm. force. I mean, not that like this album doesn't really get there, but I think we, we need to at least acknowledge that like that's the basic choice given in, in the book of Genesis. Right. Yeah. The choice isn't between like the tree of good and the tree of evil. Right. It's between the tree of life 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, in yeah. some sense, yeah. that seems like the same choice between the aesthetic and the ethical. I don't know that Kierkegaard would put it in those terms that like the aesthetic life lines up with the tree of life. I, I think that's right. Because he doesn't seem to be too satisfied that the aesthetic is like a valid option. Um, no, and, sure. And it, well, and even, you know, jumping way forward, um, either, you know, uh, After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre, mm-hmm. yep. 1981, he he says that he thinks Kierkegaard was being disingenuous by even like setting those up as as alternatives that you could choose right. the aesthetic or the yeah. ethical. Yeah. Uh, that, of course, nobody would like consciously choose the aesthetic and think they made the right choice. <laughs> Fair, fair, <laughs> but but that but I feel like we're living in such a world right now where like the 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 basic default option, and maybe this is not now. Maybe this is for all time. And you said this, Joel. The basic default option is the aesthetic life. You have to you have yes. to consciously will to step into that ethical mindset, right? Well, and I think that you can. I think you can use Kierkegaard to talk about the the state of the scene and and like Christian involvement in you know the politics of underground music and so forth. I mean. I think for a lot of white evangelicals, um, you know, at that time, they are, they chose the aesthetic life, right? They chose neutrality in the face of the choice, right? Between remaining neutral and confronting good and evil, most white evangelicals choose the aesthetic. Um, You know, I mean, (laughs) and I think that there's, this would need to be fleshed out more, but there's a lot to be said about you know, people who, you know, when they talk about the scene, when they talk about punk music and underground music, they, you know, they'll, they'll say things and they get annoyed about the politics. They'll say things like, it's just music. It's just entertainment. Yep. Right. Why do you, why does yep. there have to be some like meaning or something? And I think Kierkegaard gives us a really compelling reason why you, you should, uh, you should will the ethical right over, over the aesthetic. Well, thanks y'all for joining us for that overview episode of A to B Life. We're so excited to start digging into the actual album in the coming weeks. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. Like we've said before, this is really important to grow the podcast and uh, build our listenership. Also, be sure to subscribe to us wherever you are listening. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Us Without Them Pod. You can join our Facebook group at Us Without Them Podcast, and we're on Twitter at Us Without Them. And please share us on all your favorite platforms. Don't forget, you can also email us questions, comments, insights, theories. Argue with us, people. We want your feedback on what we are saying in this podcast. We want this to be interactive. Uh, If you're more of a phone person, you can call us at 405 Foxes. 05. That's 405-369-3705. And you can leave us a voicemail, which if it's very interesting, we might play on the show. You can also visit our website at uswithoutthempod.com where you can find episode descriptions, blog posts, and show notes. If there's any other music or any books that we referenced on the show, we'll make sure and link to them there. And lastly, we're so excited to dig into Bullet to Binary, our first episode uh, about an actual song by Me Without You. Uh, Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that. Bye and see you next time.